The following audio content is a talk given at the Inn, a college ministry of University Presbyterian Church in Seattle, Washington. For more information, please visit our website, theinnseattle.org. We are continuing tonight in our Come, Follow Me series, where we're looking at the leadership of Jesus in hopes of gleaning wisdom from him so that informs us how to step out in our communities. But before we get into that tonight, I want you guys to find somebody in the room that you don't know, and I want you to share with them. You have one minute to share what is like the craziest babysitting experience you've had when you've been a babysitter. And if you've never babysat before, maybe you have a memory of being a tiny tot and maybe share what babysitter you gave a run for their money and what happened. So any story out there, anybody is just like, I gotta share it. Anything real quick? Give a like. Nope, nothing. Okay. Well, I'll lead with mine is then. Um, so I felt like when I was preparing this message, I was just like, man, Lord, is there anything in my life that like sort of relates to this story? And he brought this memory to my mind of me when I was an au pair. I was a living, that's a living nanny. Uh, I did that for a short time when I started living out in San Francisco. Um, and I just had to share because it's one of the funniest moments I've ever experienced uh, while being a babysitter. So Mike, in a hot sec, is going to show a picture of these three adorable kids that um, I got to spend time with. And so the oldest was named Will, the middle child is named Charlotte Gray, that's the one on the left, and then the little tyke is Annabelle. So at this time, they're like two, four, and five. And so on most days, they're like the sweetest, most wonderful kids to spend time with. But then this picture is probably more accurate to describe them on a bad night. Um, so these are the three of them. They're always together, always having fun. So one night, the parents were gone out in the city, and I was responsible for an overnight into the next day. And so we decided it's going to be movie night, get the fun PJs on, things are going to be fun. I think we're watching Elf or something like that. And the middle child, Charlotte Gray, with the glasses, just gave me a run for my money that night. I mean, just disobeying, was just picking fights during the movie, and her brother and sister just wanted to be listening and having fun, and she just was having a rough night. And so after a time, I just said to her, I said, okay, Charlotte Gray, like, if you can't change your behavior, we're probably gonna have to go to bed early. And she, again, continued to misbehave, continued to be a pill of sorts that night. And so I finally just said, all right, we're going to bed. Your sibling's going to watch the movie the rest of the night, and we are going upstairs. So pick her up, put it on the back, like literally carried her on my shoulders because I knew she'd be like kicking and screaming the whole way up the staircase, which was accurate. And I spent the next hour and a half with her in a full-born tantrum. It was brutal. Wasn't listening, didn't want to go to bed. I mean, she's, she's so tired that you just feel so bad, like you know she just needs to go to sleep. But she is just struggling. And I thought, okay, what is, is there one thing that I can get her to listen to me about? And I know that her blankie is like her most prized possession. So I'm like, if I threaten the blankie, I know she'll go to bed. I know she'll go to bed. So I finally say like, hey Charlotte, like we're staying in bed and if you can't listen and stay here, then I might have to take your blanket away for the night. Totally thinking she's gonna do it. And then still is terrible, but I'm sitting there like, well, not to fall through on my word. I can't believe I'm actually taking away her blanket. This is awful. And so, but I have to do it. And so I end up taking it, feeling like the worst person ever. Um, but eventually she like crashes, she falls asleep. The other kids have fallen asleep during the movie. I bring them back up to bed and I like 
put them in their room and it is a night. And because I'm a living nanny, my door is only two doors down from theirs at the time. And then 5.30 in the morning comes about. And Chagra is awake and she has woken up her siblings and they are not excited that I have a blanket. So I'm dead asleep and I start hearing these voices outside of my bedroom door. And it's like, you get her up. No, you open the door. No, I don't want to open the door. No, come on, Will. She's mad at me. Will, open the door. Next thing you know, the door just blows open. And here are all of the siblings coming into the room. You guys, this is the funniest thing I've ever seen. We've got Will coming in with his Nerf gun ready to give me business. He shoots a couple of them to go off in my room to show me that he's like, he's bringing it to stick up for his little sister. And then Annabelle or Charlotte Gray comes in and they have this um, mini aluminum like garbage, you know, like the original like garbage cans. Well, she has taken the lid and is coming with her shield ready to defend herself from me. So Will's got the, <laughs> the nurse gun, she's got her shield, and Annabelle's like two, doesn't know what she's doing, falling behind with her thumb in her mouth, just like along for the ride. And uh, as soon as they walk in, Annabelle looks up at me, she's like, is it true? <laughs> is it true you took Charlotte Gray's blinking away last night? And I was just like, oh my God. I'm like, <laughs> like well, like this is 5.30 in the morning, and they're like, hairs everywhere, they're still in their GMEs, and I'm like trying to take them seriously, I'm like, Okay, parenting mode 101. I'm like, yes, it was very unfortunate that because Charlotte Gray was misbehaving last night, there was consequences for what she did. And then there's kind of like this pause, and Annabelle's like, you were pretty bad last night, Charlotte. <laughs> then, like, and then Will's like, yeah, you kept picking a fight with me. So they like acknowledge that she was pretty bad, but then they look back at me, and Will's like, but at the same time, you took her blanket away. She's like, who do you think you are? You're not our mom. You're gonna be in trouble when mom gets home today. And it was just the funniest thing to me because kids, even at such a young age, are testing our authority, you know? They're like, who are you to be able to say that to me? Who are you to be able to speak into my life um, in circumstances like this? And it continues to fascinate me because into our day and age, even as we're growing up, we continue to entertain and engage this conversation as well. Quick side note, one of the most hilarious things was is that Christmas my brother bought me a Nerf gun as a present so I could defend myself the next break-in. But anyways, um, so anyhow, back to what we're really talking about tonight is that we are going to look at a story where Jesus comes in and he observes the temple and he recognizes that there's things going on in the temple that he's not okay with. And we see him respond with this radical passion only because he knows what the experience could be for people. He sees the potential. He sees the goodness of what could come from the situation. And because he's good, he's willing to step into a potential chaotic moment and share what he believes, a conviction in his heart that we see ends up being this very radical, passionate response. And I think just in the same way that like, I was spending time with Charlotte Gray, it's just like, I know the potential that could have been for the movie night. Like, it could have been so much fun. We could have had a blast together. But we believe when we see something, when we continue to let things keep going, we know it's affecting the environment. We know it's affecting the people that are present and around. It's not just for that person, but it's for the people that would come and be in that atmosphere that get affected. Um, and so we're going to talk about the story of Jesus in the temple in John 2. But before we do that, I want to pray for us really quickly. So, Lord, thank you for tonight. 
Thank you that you're here, that you're in this room, that you're excited to talk to us. You're excited to reveal yourself to us tonight, God. And I just pray that we would capture an image of your grace. I pray that we would get to know you a little bit better, God. I just pray that you would transform us from the inside out, God, that we would see exactly and accurately who Jesus is for us and what that means for our life, God. And so we give you tonight, I pray that you would remove anything from my mouth that is not from you, God, and that you would just give me the words to speak tonight. We love you in Jesus' name. Okay, so before we dig into the story, I just want to, if you haven't been with us in our Come Follow Me series yet, What I've been loving is this discovery of Jesus that we're having. We're digging in or we're looking into who Jesus is and something that we've discovered over the last few weeks is how locked in to his identity that Jesus is. He knows exactly his purpose on this earth. Chris talked about he's come because he's about his father's business. He knows what that means and he also is secure and he's grounded in what God's calling him into. Uh, Last week, We had Grant come and speak, and he talked about Jesus being this person that can be uh, interrupted, and it's because he's so in tune with what God is saying to him. He's constantly listening, constantly asking God, like, what do you have for me in this situation? And the foundation that he's built for himself allows him to step into these circumstances because he's so rooted in his relationship with God, and and it's the confidence And that authority that he carries of the kingdom that allows him to come and does what he does tonight, or that we're going to hear about tonight. So I, before we, um, or yeah, as we dig in uh, to the story of Jesus clearing out the temple, we're going to see how this foundation specifically and the zeal that Jesus has for wholeness and abundant life causes this radical, passionate response out of him. So context as to what's happening and what's going on in John 2. Jesus is, he's just turned water into wine. It's like the very beginning stages of his ministry. And he's spending time in Capernaum, visiting his family. And what's going on in Jerusalem is that he's going to travel there because the Jewish Passover celebration is going on. And it was expected that every male who was 12 years old and older Uh, would be present and expected to go. So Jesus, because he fits into that category, obviously is going and honoring the law. And you can imagine the sight that he sees is all these people traveling into the city. It's becoming like the hub of hubs uh, over that week. People from all over Israel are coming, whether Jewish or Gentiles, and also from all over the world. So you can imagine just this huge influx of people coming uh, with their families uh, to come worship God and to celebrate God's deliverance of the people of Israel from the Egyptian bondage. And so he's coming there, and as he comes into the temple, he observes something. So we're going to throw up the first text, um, and John 2, 13, verses 14 says, It was nearly time for the Jewish Passover celebration, so Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple area, he saw merchants selling cattle, sheep, and doves for sacrifices. And he also saw dealers at the tables exchanging foreign money. Okay, so I want to talk about a couple things that he is observing. First are the merchants. So why are these merchants there, and why are they selling these animals in this area? Well, as his families would travel to the temple, they part of the experience of the Passover celebration that as a family, they would sacrifice an animal to pay an atonement for their sins. So you can 
I mean, we can't imagine because we're not them, but picture people who've been traveling for weeks that are coming to this stadium, or maybe it's only a few days for them, but there's people traveling from far and wide who it would be easier to bring their own animal that doesn't cost them anything more to Jerusalem. But what's been going on is that as people have been traveling and bringing um, their perfect purebred uh animals is that they're being rejected by the temple priests. They're saying like, oh, like your animal isn't good enough. Your animal isn't pure enough, you know, to pay atonement for your sins. And so what has changed over this time is now suddenly there's these merchants in the temple that are trying to make it easier for um, this thing or for this to take place. And so Jesus is observing this and he's realizing that the priests are like, allowing this to happen and what they're doing is they're kind of forcing people to pray these outrageous prices to buy these animals for their sacrifice. These dealers are charging exorbitant prices. They describe that a dove that would cost a nickel, they're charging them four dollars and you can only imagine what you know the oxen and the other um, the other you know animals were costing and essentially they're be I mean they're scamming them and they're like Jesus is like wait like why is this happening here? And these people are getting scammed other money. And next thing he knows, he starts recognizing the money dealers that are there. And they're just sitting cross-legged behind their coin-covered tables. And what was happening here is that the, jo or the Jewish coin was the, um, was the only form of currency that allowed to be offered in the temple because every worshiper who was coming had to pay this annual temple tribute um, that was half a shekel. So if you were coming and you had a different form of money, you had to take it to these dealers, kind of like when we go abroad, we have to get you know the foreign exchange like currency. But then they would add all these other transaction fees on top of it. So once again, it's like they're trying to come and worship God and then these people under like, under the name of God, are again being exploited and being kept from the stuff going on. And so, and then not only is Jesus observing this, but in his brain, he's probably like, and this is happening in, in the temple. This is happening here. Previously, you were able to purchase animals and, you know, exchange your money in different parts of town, but now suddenly it's happening in the temple courts. And there's, if you saw a picture of the temple, Back then, there was the inner courts, and that was pretty small and only allowed those who were pure and like and cleansed to be able to be in there. And it's primarily only for pure Jews. But if you were a Gentile, you're not allowed to go into the inner courts. You had to stay outside in the outer courts. It was kind of their form of like experiencing racism back then. And so they couldn't go in because they, were they weren't truly Jewish and um, converted later. And so suddenly, Jesus is like recognizing what's going on. These poor Gentiles who are having to come and have this moment and experience with their family is now like this barnyard experience where, you know, it's, you're seeing it filled. They're trying to like squeeze their way in, most likely between all these oxen and lambs and, and doves. And it's just this marketplace going on. Um, and there's noises of things going on and bickering businessmen. And, Jesus is sitting there like, how, how are these people having an experience with me when they're so distracted by all these undesirable things? What Jesus is observing is this, these abundant opportunities for deception and abuse, and the purpose of the temple was to be a house of prayer for all the nations, and now it's become a place of profit-taking. That smells like a barnyard, more than a place that would, someone would go to seek the presence of God. 
And it's in this moment I can imagine the emotions welling up in Jesus because he so desperately desires for God's children to be able to come into the temple and experience the fullness of God right away. But here's all these loopholes to get through. The money, taking care of the animals, and people are coming that are widows, that are slaves, that, I mean, a lot of people are coming and showing up that don't have the means to afford this, and but they have to somehow figure out a way to do this. And it's the zeal for pure worship in the Father's house that leads Jesus to respond this way. And so let's continue on in verse 15 through 17. So Jesus made a whip from some ropes and chased them all out of the temple. He drove out the sheep and cattle, scattered the money changers' coins over the floor, and turned over their tables. Then, in going over to the people who sold doves, he said to them, Get these things out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a marketplace. Then his disciples remembered this prophecy from the scriptures, Passion for God's house will consume me. When we read the response by Jesus, it's easy to imagine this angry Jesus, to focus on the humanity of him and to just think, man, like, he really let loose. He lost it. He's turning over tables. He's grabbing this whip and all that stuff is going on. But what I really want us to address tonight is that I think there's a difference between a reaction and a response. I believe a reaction stems from something that's impulse, something that comes out of us that's unpredictable and it has ramifications that, you know, we probably didn't, you know, plan on. You know, I hear people make remarks all the time like, man, did you see Mike lose it over the dog's loss? Like people react to things. You can't control your emotions sometimes. I'm just being funny. But what I believe that takes place in this moment is a response from Jesus, and a response has purpose behind it, has intention, there's reason, and it's rooted in the urgency for God's people to worship in the Father's house and now. And I think it's really this passionate and radical side of Jesus that's revealed in this moment that's displaying the heart that he has, that he cares for his people to experience the fullness of God's love. That's what it's rooted in. And if the deceit in the temple that housed the presence of the living God wasn't cleared out, is going to affect every person that was traveling there to when they tried to encounter him. And what I do love about the story is that Jesus shows an urgency to things. He doesn't see things and just let it pass him by. He doesn't settle. The Jewish priests knew what was going on the whole time, but they did nothing to change the matter. They were allowing this behavior, and they were stalling families from seeking peace in this moment of worship. And Jesus has no tolerance for that behavior to passively coexist in his father's house. So let's look at the response from the Jewish leaders following what Jesus did. Uh, let's go back to verse 18. But the Jewish leaders demanded, what are you doing? If God gave you the authority to do this, show us a miraculous sign to prove it. All right, Jesus replied, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. What? They exclaimed. It has taken 46 years to build this temple and you can rebuild it in three days? Okay, we're going to pause right there for a moment. So the leaders don't argue with Jesus about the evil of making the temple courts a marketplace. Just like Annabelle and Will, they're like, Charlotte, you weren't pretty bad last night. Like, they knew what was going on. They agreed with, the Jewish you know, priests were agreed with Jesus in a sense, but what the leaders seemed to be questioning is that it's the issue isn't what has been done but who has done it what authority gives jesus the right to do this annabelle wanted to know by what permission was i able to take away charlotte's blankie because i wasn't her mom 
Similarly, the priests were raising the issue of Jesus' identity and authority. And so for somebody to come in and cleanse the temple and correct wrongdoing found there implies having the authority to do so. So the leaders say, if he is acting with God's authority, let him perform a sign to prove it. And when Jesus responds to the religious leaders, he actually foretells of the ultimate sign, which they can't comprehend in that moment. Jesus doesn't refer to any of the signs he's already performed, like changing water into wine to prove himself. He doesn't even try to convince everyone of who he is. Instead, he speaks of the ultimate sign, his death and his resurrection. Let's look at the rest of, uh, let's go back to 21. It says, but when Jesus said this temple, he meant his body. After he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered he had said this, and they believed both the scriptures and what Jesus had said. So Jesus speaks of himself as a temple of God in his coming crucifixion. He's not trying to persuade the Jews to believe in him, but rather he actually is prophesying that they will not believe and that they will put him to death on Calvary. His triumph will be evident to them the three days after when he will be erased from the dead. So what Jesus is communicating is, yes, I have the authority to make you clean because I am the ultimate sacrifice your hearts have been longing for. And I want us to look quickly at a scripture in Hebrews that follows this, that talks about this exact situation. The writer Paul of Hebrews depicts exactly what is going on in this. It's like him being able to look back at that situation. He talks about what's going on in the temple. He's talking about the sacrifices that people were coming to the altar to give and how it wasn't actually getting anybody anywhere. So let's look at Hebrews 10, and we're going to read 1 through 4, and then we'll skip down to 11 verses 14 after that. This is in the message. I think it makes easiest sense reading it that way. So the old plan was only a hint of the good things in the new plan. Since that old law plan wasn't complete in itself, it couldn't complete those who followed it. No matter how many sacrifices were offered year after year, they never added up to a complete solution. If they had, the worshipers would have gone merrily on their way, no longer dragged down by their sins. But instead of removing awareness of sin, when those animal sacrifices were repeated over and over, they actually heightened awareness and guilt. The plain fact is that bull and goat blood can't get rid of sin. It's not interesting. He recognizes that. He continues in verse 11. Every priest goes to work at the altar each day offers the same old sacrifices year in and year out, and never makes a dent in the sin problem. As a priest, Christ made a single sacrifice for sins, and that was it. He sat down right beside God and waited for his enemies to cave in, and it was a perfect sacrifice by a perfect person to perfect some very imperfect people. And by that single offering, he did everything that needed to be done for everyone who takes part in the purifying process. So what this is saying is the sacrifices that these Jews and Gentiles came to made or made year after year only was reminding them more of their sin and how they've fallen short. The passage said the priests never even made a dent in the sin problem. The ultimate sacrifice that Jesus offered makes it now so that we are no longer consciousness of our sin. Jesus, the perfect sacrifice, puts an end to this remembrance and our sinful nature because God nailed our old nature on the cross with Christ. And God left it in the grave with no desire to resurrect it again. Think about this. If you are dead, like you are completely dead. There's no like halfway with death. Like This is indisputable in the natural world and also certainly the case in the realm of the spirit. 
it would be an insult to Jesus if the father was like, well, their sin nature still kind of exists. What she did really wasn't enough. Like, I don't think that is what happened. And what I am not saying is that we don't not have sin habits. We do, but we no longer have an innate sinful nature. And this is different. And it's so important to grasp this, concept, this theological perspective because it will help us remember how God sees us when those things come to the surface. For example, we so often hear about the word repent, and then everyone gets awkward and not to rag on the church, but I feel like any time that gets that word is announced up front, I just feel like all everyone's like posture and demeanor changes in a room, right? But the Old Testament repentance is completely different than the New Testament repentance. The word is gets like a whole new definition. The Greek meaning of repent. It's translated that it's, we're no longer repenting from something, so our like old nature, we're no longer doing that. We're actually repenting to something, and that to something is our new nature, our new self. So think about this out, this way. So if a situation comes up where you defaulted to anxiety, when you could have had peace in a moment, you don't apologize to God for anxiety since he, he nailed anxiety on the cross. He, he dealt with it. He took care of it. So if you want to repent, it's like, Lord, I had the opportunity to accept your peace, and I didn't. Does that make sense? Like, because the focus of Holy Spirit is to lead us to the new man, to point out the new man, our new nature. Our anxiety isn't there anymore. Like, Jesus is trying to show us, like, the opportunity we have in Christ. It's kind of like you had the opportunity in that situation to express the new man, but you defaulted to the old man again. Here's what I'm getting at, and here's what I hope ultimately that the inn preaches and that we are about, that this community is about. Our God only sees what is missing from our current experience with Christ, and he's deeply committed to showing me my new nature in Christ. That is the posture that Jesus has towards us. God has no bad thoughts about us, only a desire to see us conform to the image of Christ. He acknowledges our sin habits, but he wants to help us be continually reformed into righteousness through the course of our life. And the shift of thinking, that radic- this radically like altered my faith journey when I realized that anytime a spirit was putting his finger on my life in an area that wasn't working, like he was doing it to remind me of my righteousness because he wanted to establish it in my life. That's very different than a God that's come, I'm going to put a finger on an area of my life and point out what's wrong. He's putting a finger on me to show me what I can step into. He loves me too much and he loves you too much to leave us the way that we are. He desires for his children to experience this full, abundant life. And that's what Jesus is saying. I'm going to be that ultimate sacrifice for you that your hearts are craving and hungry for. My sister, about two weeks, shared with me this story about her best friend, Jesse, and I felt you guys would never meet Jesse or know Jesse, so I felt like it was okay to share this. So well, my sister and I are, um, are hanging out, and she's said she's like Jesse is her best friend from childhood. They've grown up together. They have continued to be friends. And my sister, this is the one friend that she has that she just continues to pray for. She doesn't really know God a whole lot. Acknowledges that He's there, but that's probably like the base of it. And two weeks ago, Jesse came home because she's really in a bout of depression right now and really struggling and opened up to my sister while she was home. She's really been like seeking out guys and to really like make her feel better and um, just always different outlets, but wasn't really getting anywhere. And 
Michelle and her like went on a hike and halfway through the hike, out of nowhere, Jesse's like, I think I met God in my dream. Michelle's like, what? I'm like, what? You, you met God in your dream? She's like, yeah, I, I gotta ask you because you do the church thing and I, I need to know if what happened is what you think your God is. And she said, I was at this wedding and I remember everything about the wedding. She's like, I remember the food I ate. I remember the people that I was with. I remember the table that I sat at. I remember everything. And the whole wedding, there was this woman, probably in her 50s on the dance floor. And she looked like she was having so much fun. And, but then she kept, she was looking at me the entire wedding. She's like, it wasn't creepy, it wasn't weird, but she always had an eye on like everything that was going on with me. And she's like, and then I met these guys at the party, or the wedding that I had met before. And after the end of the night, I decided that I was gonna go home with these guys. And she kind of paused, she's like, I'm wondering if this is reflective of what's been going on in my life. And she's like, and just before I went out the door, the lady on the dance floor grabbed me and she pulled me out on the dance floor. And she's like, come dance with me. You wanna dance with me, it's so fun. And she's like, Jesse, I love you, Jesse. I'm so proud of you, Jesse. She's like, you don't want that. I'm really fun. You don't know how fun I am, but I'm fun. And she said that for the next hour at the wedding. Jesse was like, it was the most joy she ever felt. And at the end, the lady was like, you know who I am. You don't have to question, you know who I am. And then she woke up. I don't know, I'm crying, sorry. That's our father. What did he say to Jesse? I love you, I'm proud of you. Words she's never heard from her family. She's not even following God. But the county that she has with him in her sleep is that he's for her, not calling out her sin addressing how God sees her and fully clothed in righteousness. And that's, he just wants us to come be with him so that we can hear that he sees us differently. There's a different message that he has for us. And the response out of Jesus, the righteous anger that we observe, this passion and urgency is all rooted in the conviction that he wants more for us. And he wants to just experience it now. He's, he's tired of our sin management. That, that's what our faith has become like. He's not mad at us. He's mad about us. And he wants to break down the barriers, the walls, the loopholes, the deceit that tell us, here's all the things that we need to do and take care of before we step into this abundant life. So what does this passionate, urgent Jesus mean for us? What about the way that Jesus led in the temple would inform us that us as a body, you guys sitting here in this room, us together would respond on our campus and our neighborhoods and our living situations and our friends and our families. Our response, I believe, begins with remembering that we're the temple now. We are the living temple. When Jesus raised from the dead, he, took the dis- he told his disciples that he was sending Holy Spirit as a helper. And what happened on that day of Pentecost is that God's disciples began hosting the presence of the living God inside of them. No longer would his people have to go to the temple anymore to visit God. Now God in the form of his spirit would be alive in his children. Like, we are always with him. We don't have to go anywhere. We don't have to talk to anybody else. Like, he's right here with us. He's in in us, he says that we are holy and pleasing to him because he sees who's in us and the hope and the journey that we have with Holy Spirit in us is that he's pointing us towards more wholeness, more 
righteousness. And he wants to use us to point out other people's new nature, the new self that we're clothed in. But it starts, this opportunity to be that voice starts with actually starting with ourselves first. We can't look outward until we've begun to look inward. And it matters how we take care of our, of our own temples. It matters how we, what we fill it with because whoever is coming into interacting with us is going to experience whatever is in us. Like we can only give away what we carry, if that makes sense. If I behold a God who's judgmental, I'm only gonna give away judgment. But if I behold a God who's of grace, what I behold, I become to other people. And so firstly, my hope is that we would take the time to renew our minds, constantly be renewing our minds, to pay attention to the places where I'm like, wait a minute, where am I thinking, where am I not in alignment with Christ about how he sees his, his kids or how he sees me in particular? That we remember the ultimate sacrifice that Jesus paid for us and that we would always be going to him to hear our new nature. I know that no one who has heard God tell them who they are would ever want to be anybody else. Jessie couldn't believe what God said about her in her dream. And I know that for me, when I do something that enables my instant habits, like I get all introverted. I get kind of like shut down, I'm quiet. I kind of feel like I'm, I'm this person who like, I disqualify myself to be able to speak about God on his behalf. But the length of time that I spend in this like odd spiritual like timeout that I give myself, all that I'm doing is letting the enemy win in my life. And since when did I ever want to give him permission to do that? I'm letting him tell me who I'm not. I heard someone say that no one was ever born to hide or to be insignificant. God created us for glory and he wants to remind us who we are. Because when we're in hiding, we're not believing the truth about who we are. There's something going on in that vertical relationship that he wants to fill us up with his truth so that truth of grace is a thing that is overflowing out of our temples. And after we've spent time renewing our mind, I believe the next thing that we're, we're invited into is to engage the chaos. I'm first to say we are not Jesus and we are not people who are going to go around saying, you need to clean up so-and-so. Like that's, that's not our role. That's the spiritual role that he does through conviction. But we have a role of engagement. We have a role to be that person who's willing to sit in uncomfortable conversations. To not shy away from the hard things and to be that person that invites others to open up. Ask yourself this question tonight. Do, do people reach out to you? Like, Do people seek you out when they think about wanting to process life? Do, do, think, do people think of you in that way? Do they know that they can? Do they know that, you, that you're going to listen? And Because my hope for this community is that we're going to be people that just open doors for people for conversation. That we be people asking intentional questions about what's going on deep down that isn't letting people settle with life that's just above average or okay. What if we became a people that decided that nobody's safe around us in a good way? <laughs> what if we, because we're continually going to do the source to be filled up and reminded of our new identity and new nature, became a fountain of overflow of grace, and those that interact with us like, couldn't help but be affected by your grace? Last week, Grant engaged us again about what it means to be interruptible, and like Jesus, even though he was on his way to be doing something important, I think this, 
text also begs the question is, do we make ourselves available to people? Do people know that our door is always open, that when they send a text message or reach out or call, like you don't wait five hours to respond, like you are that person that responds in that moment and says, I'm gonna drop everything to come be with you right now. Because I just wanna sit with you and I wanna listen, I wanna hear you process. Does our community know that we are people that will do that, that we're gonna be about it, that we on staff are about that for you? My hope, it's kind of a funny thought, so what if we woke up every morning and the enemy shuddered when he saw our feet hit the ground because he knew that we were awake? Because he knows the type of person that you're gonna be every day, that when people interact with you, you're a person that engages, you ask questions, and you're the extension of God's love. And the last thing that I feel like we're being invited into by Jesus is to risk your vulnerability. Risk it. Lead with your own stories. Lead with what's going on in your world, that we're seeking after wholeness together. That wholeness is really just a really great idea. Like, I can run into the presence of God every day, and I'm going to hear that he says, I'm for you. And he says, no, Becca, you're not anxious. You're a person of peace, Becca. You aren't struggling, because i got the joy to deposit in you. But if we're not risking our vulnerability, then we're just hiding all the time. We're pretending like everything is going on, but no one is really always doing good. You know, we always have stuff that are coming to the surface, and I'm gonna be the first to acknowledge and name out loud that there's stuff that, just like the priests in the temple, that I'm just keep brushing over, brushing under the rug. I'm not engaging, I'm not allowing, that I'm not bringing to the table. And even in my marriage, I would say that there's something in me, there's something that's been in Michael and I over the last year that just says, there's a fuller picture of this marriage. Nothing's bad. If you all know Michael, he's like the most hilarious person you've ever met, and we have a lot of fun together. But I know that there's a fuller picture of who we are together. And there's areas, and I'm not going to speak for him, but there's areas, at least for me, where I know that like my wounds are like can wound him. Ash and I talked earlier this year, and she reminded me of that I made this comment like two weeks ago. She said, Bex, I never will forget the time you said, pain that is not transformed is transferred. And that's so true. There's pain that I have in my life. I know there's areas within me that haven't been transformed yet. And so I believe that God has been touching me and just saying, like, I want you to see your new nature. I want you to see you the way that I see you. That every time that you go and you try and take control of situations, it's because you're not trusting in me. And every time, oh, I could go on um, with my ish. Anyways, but like every time that you are struggling to believe how you see yourself, like here's all the ways that you're escaping. Here's all the things you're clinging to. And there's multiple things in my life where I'm just like, I'm, I'm tired of holding on to it. I don't want to hold on to it. And Jesus is wanting to bring that into life and wanting to build this foundation in me so that I can fully step into who he's called me. And third, mentioned it earlier, but it's been this hard conversation with Mike and I where we're just going to go, are we going to give nine months to Jesus to just let everything on the table? We're going to put it all out on the table. We're going to hide nothing. We're going to bring all of our stuff to the surface and just say, Jesus, have your way. We are surrendering our lives. It is logical in so many ways what we're doing. Leaving you guys, like, that's just crazy. But I feel like he's saying, there's so much more I want to do in your life. But there's a cleansing of your temples that I have for you. There's a wholeness for you that I have for you. In the next nine months that we're going to go down to California and participate 
in Bethel's um, School of Ministry is going to come alongside of us in that process. Um, and my hope is that we come out of there so strong. I mean, I know we'll come out of there so strong. But I'm going to have confidence in who I am. And I'm not afraid to be vulnerable this year. I'm not afraid to lay it out there and just say, this is me. God, what do you say about me? Because I want to know in every square inch of me. I don't want to leave anything with my hands this or this way. I want to have it all surrendered to him. So we're going, and the next week at the inn is like my last summer in to be at, and my last day is August 11th. I'm working for you men, but I want you to know this is a place that I cherish. This is a place that my four years of college meant the world to me. It transformed my faith journey. In the last three years, I think all of you have transformed my faith journey. We learn more from you than you think we do, because we don't have it together. <laughs> but you guys have been part of my journey and experiencing the fullness of God. And so I just want to say, as I stand up here for the last time, that I want all of you guys to know in this room that you have the potential to transform this campus because of the overflow of the Spirit in you. Because you are God's temple taking the time to renew our minds and engage in the chaos and to risk your vulnerability, I believe will create a ripple effect across this neighborhood as people encounter the grace of Jesus in you. My prayer is that judgment will flee this place and not one person will feel disqualified from coming into the presence of God. I believe the goodness of Jesus wants to ooze out of every single one of you and Holy Spirit is looking to create moments in your life where he just blows open the door for conversations for you to engage in the hard stuff because it might lead to chaos. Like Jesus created chaos in the temple, don't get me wrong. But because of what was on the other side of it, he knew it was worth it. Freedom is on the other side of those conversations that you have. Wholeness is on the other side of those conversations. Righteousness, love, the good news of Jesus Christ is for every person that we encounter. And there's no excuse that would disqualify any of us for participating in what he has for this neighborhood. So I leave here confident in what you will accomplish in Christ next year. I'm confident that people will be transformed when they're around you, no matter what. I'm confident that the works of the enemy will be destroyed through you because you will give him no say in your life. No one was born to hide in shame and guilt and to be insignificant. They are born to thrive and to live in the wholeness, and I believe that you guys are voices for that. Jesus believes in what this ministry will pursue in this next season, and the tone that we set, the culture that we create of grace, starts here with you guys, with the students, because people meet you when they come to the end. They're interacting with you, and I believe that you can carry my torch with the rest of the staff, and if you don't know how to start or where to begin, just be like Isaiah when he came to the Lord and he just said, here am I, send me. And I believe that's what he's prompting us to do, is just have a posture of our hearts where we're saying, hear my God, send me, use me how you envision me to be used. And so with that, I just thank you guys for an incredible last three years here, and I love you loads, but let's pray as we head back into worship. Thank you, Jesus, that there is no condemnation because you've paid the ultimate sacrifice. Thank you that no one is disqualified anymore and we can run into your presence. Thank you that we are covered by your blood and that you no longer hide your face from us. Thank you that when you look at us, you're, holding, you're looking at who we're becoming in you. You see our sin nature dead and alive in you. 
God, and I just pray for the person that's here tonight that just needs to be touched by you, who needs to know that they know that they know that this is true, that they no longer are seen with their sin nature, but you see them alive with you. And so God, I just pray for our community, for the students in this room, that you would just cast a vision for them to go be intentional, to go open the doors that have been locked for so long, that when their friends and family spend time around them, God, that they can't help but start to open up about the hard stuff because you're leading them into freedom. I pray for wisdom and the overflow in us so that anything coming out of our mouths, God, would be your words. God, we are seeking after freedom in this place, God, and we are seeking after your wholeness so we can carry out your heavenly agenda. Thank you that you came to give life and life to the full. God, and we believe in big things for this campus. Like you say in the Lord's Prayer, may your kingdom come and will be done on this campus as it is in heaven. Amen.